You're listening to Women Making Waves. And our first guest today is Patricia Gregory, who spoke to Susie Thorpe and I. Using my father's car and getting sometimes eight people in this car, bombing up the M1 to a match in Luton. So what motivated you? (laughs) Same thing probably that motivated me when my father refused to take me with him to Tottenham Hotspur. There were individuals who were very helpful to us, but as a body, no. I just want to make sure that what the Women's FA did is not lost. Excited by England's 1966 World Cup victory and the FA Cup win by Tottenham that same year, Patricia Gregory wrote to her local paper questioning why women were not playing the beautiful game. A keen football fan, Patricia received letters from women interested in playing. When you received those letters after you'd written to the newspaper, was that, was that something you were expecting to do, to be setting up a women's football team? Was that in the back of your mind or was that something that actually you thought, well, let's just do it? Do you know, 50 years on, I can't remember. <laughs> um, we, all these girls were, I, I was very I was very young. 50 years ago, I was only, well, no, more than 50 years ago. I was uh, about 19 when we, we started the team and we... We just decided that we were going to carry on. I mean, it didn't occur to us what we were doing, what we were the forerunner of. I wrote again to the newspaper and a men's team in North London saw saw our plight and they said, well, come and share our training facilities in Tottenham. They were a men's team called White Star. We didn't have a name and they said, well... Tottenham Hotspur professional team in the 1930s used to play against a men's amateur side called White Ribbon. So there we had too much of a coincidence. That's what we called ourselves, White Ribbon. We weren't any good, I have to say that. We (laughs) we just weren't any good. But it didn't matter because um, I advertised in a football magazine for opposition. And boys and men's teams said, oh, come and play us. So we'd get on the train and we'd go down to Rochester and we'd play them. Now, it's not something that is very sensible to do because mostly the men or young men were quite respectful that they were playing women. Uh, But you've always got one who is not going to be beaten by a girl. And this advert was also seen by a gentleman called Arthur Hobbs. Arthur came from Dealing Kent. And so 1968, we're talking about... No, it must have been 1967, when he was running a competition for women's teams in Deal in Kent. So we get on the train again and off we go to Deal to see this competition. He had got the local colliery to um, allow the competition to take place on their ground. And there were these women's teams, some from as far afield as Scotland. Canvas Lang, I think, Hooverettes, so it was to do with... Hoover and this was the first gathering of women's teams so the following year 68 we went down to participate I mean we we failed gloriously but that's what we did mostly in our footballing career at the end of the deal tournament in 69 we formed the women's football association with the nucleus being the clubs who had participated in the deal international tournament it was international because they had checked teams come over from, uh, well, obviously, Czechoslovakia, as it then was, 
and they were also, I think, from the mining industry. Why was there a necessity to form an association? Was it to kind of manage the teams, manage the games and the rules and things like that? You've got to have a structure. Um, we, we knew that even early on. And we had this very loose alliance where we would talk to each other because also out of the deal tournament came the first leagues. My league was the South East of England League. And we had teams, one or two teams from North London, but mostly they were based around the Luton area. So we were forever using my father's car and getting sometimes eight people in this car, bombing up the M1 to a match in Luton. Um, so, you know, we, we did what we could. I, I still I don't quite know when we realised, if we ever did, that we were playing a part in history. What you have to appreciate is that it wasn't just women running these teams. I've already mentioned Arthur Hobbs. The first treasurer of the WFA was a chap called Charlie Cook. The first vice chairman was a chap called Pat Gwynne, who was a referee. So, And most of the teams were managed by men. When you took on this responsibility of actually starting a team and then going on to mm-hmm. perform leagues, yes. did you have any idea how to actually run it? I mean, you know, you mentioned about men being part of it, but did you have any idea how to run it in the first place? Not a clue. <laughs> no. no, not a clue. So what motivated you? <laughs> Same thing probably that motivated me when my father refused to take me with him to Tottenham Hotspur. My father was a Tottenham Hotspur fan. I suspect that's why my brother automatically became an Arsenal fan. But neither of them wanted to take me to football and I didn't go to a men's match, professional men's match, until I was 15. I, I understood then why, because my father, it wasn't best place for a girl lots, to be. Lots of swearing, wasn't there? Oh, there was lots of swearing, but nothing I hadn't heard from the cellar where my father did all his do it himself. <laughs> um, and, but it was, it was the fact that uh, they didn't necessarily visit the gents' toilet. They would, uh, they would have their lemonade bottle with yeah. them. So I can understand why my father was um, somewhat concerned. I remember going to a professional club when we had a match at a professional club. This is years later. And I couldn't believe the state of the ground around the gents' toilets. You continue to be com- completely and utterly involved in football, women's football. Mm-hmm. You had a full-time job. How did that all I work out? Writer. <laughs> a typewriter, I had a typewriter, yeah, A typewriter, exactly. which is a very old typewriter. Yes, I, I, I had to, I was out at work. Um, before 1970, which is when I joined the BBC, I, I worked, uh, well, for the first couple of years before that, I was at the Sunday Telegraph in the sports department. And they, they were very good. But I, um, yes, I used to work at whatever job I had and then come home. I was still living at my parents' then, so I'd have my dinner. And then I would go up to my room to do the paperwork for the club and the league and, and if necessary, the association. Because Arthur, who became the Honorary Secretary of the Women's FA, he didn't type. He wrote everything longhand. I could type. So anything of an official nature, I would type. Mm. Mm. It, it sounds like you're really into sport, though, because you yeah. worked you worked for the newspaper in the sports mm. department. You then went on to the BBC in the sports department, mm-hmm. and then ITV mm-hmm. also in the sports department. And then back a, to quite, the BBC. A, a little bit more senior when you went to the ITV as well, weren't you? Yeah, I, I took a job in '78. Uh, I was offered a job, 
uh, to go there as the network sports coordinator. So this got me out from being... I had been a secretary and then I'd become sort of a clerk. But they gave me what I thought was a career structure, which at that time the BBC was not offering. And I was at ITV for 15 years. And then in 93, ITV was reducing their sports um, capacity and I was made redundant. And then the BBC came calling and invited me to come back. Mm. So I went back as a production manager for specifically for the World Cup of 94. Was it perceived women could do that job in, in, the, in the sports industry? Or did you have lots of hurdles then? It was an extension of uh, being a secretary, wasn't it? But women are noted, are they not, for their attention to detail. So going back to the WFA and Mm -hmm. it was being taken over by the FA, did you want that? Well, we weren't actually taken over by the FA because I I was involved with the WFA for its lifetime. I was honorary secretary until 1980-81, by which time I'd said to them, you've got to find the money to employ somebody. And so I then took a backward step. We did employ somebody and opened an office. We had to have substantial grants in order to be able to do that. And uh, we employed somebody for the first time. I I did a year as chairman. I, I then was made an honorary life vice president, which meant I was very much in the background. But that was fine because, as we've alluded to, my, my day job was quite demanding. As we got into the 90s, it became evident that we were running in debt, the WFA. We did not have the money to pour into it as it needed. So for two years, we had some torturous meetings about how we should progress. And in 93, I was certainly on the side where I believe now was the time to hand it over to the Football Association. What you have to remember is that in 1971, UEFA, the European governing body of football, held a vote in the December to decide how to go forward with women's football. And they voted 31 to 1 to take over women's football, the control of women's football. The one was Scotland, and they held out for a little longer, but not not very much. This meant that the member associations of UEFA could choose how they wanted to take control of women's football, with the exception of the United Kingdom, because you know they have we have different associations. We have England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Italy and Portugal. Everybody else in Europe just took women's football into the association. So I've often thought, might we have made quicker progress had that happened at that time, but it didn't. So the Women's FA was recognised by the FA actually on leap year day 1972 as the sole governing body of women's football in this country at the present time. Words that will probably go on my gravestone. By this time, we had, in any case, formed a good uh, rapport with the Football Association and they were being helpful to us from 69 on because they lifted the 1921 rule in 69, which allowed us to be able to um, hire pitches, etc., and use referees. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask that. I mean, what I was wondering if it was done under duress almost or if they were ver- very happy to promote women women's football and actually be supportive. There were individuals who were very helpful to us, but as a body, no. By the time we came along with our national side in 1972, they were always very helpful 
with um, providing top-class referees and paying for them, I seem to think. When we went to them, we we wanted a, a, a good coach for the national side, the first national side, and they always came up with somebody, a senior coach from the coaching department. So we had very many friends within the ranks. It was just as a body that they weren't so keen. But this, um, you know, I think we wore them down. Women have played football in this country, in the United Kingdom, since the 1880s. There were teams around in the 1880s, 1890s, some some up in Scotland, and there was a notable match which was covered in the sketch newspaper in 1895 when a young lady by the name of Nettie J. Honeyball had a North v. South match in Hornsey in North London, which, curiously enough, was where I was brought up. There are some people who say that Nettie J. Honeyball was not her real name because, of course, you can imagine in the 1890s there was a lot of opposition and girls didn't necessarily want to advertise that they were who they were. We then got on to the uh, early part of the 20th century. The munitions factories leading up to the First World War were instrumental in having teams of women playing football who did so during the war when the men were away. So you can imagine that when the men came back after the First World War, this eventually led to the 1921 rule that women should not be playing football because the Football Association had decided that it wasn't something for the female, feminine form, to undertake. And they were also concerned, they said, that money ostensibly raised for charity was not reaching the charitable purposes. That didn't stop women from playing. Uh, again, you have the Dick Kerr's ladies from Preston who've been widely advertised. There was Manchester Corinthians and a bit later on Foden. So these teams were still around but operating in an era when they were unaffiliated football, which is the reason why... I was not allowed to hire a pitch or training facilities from my local council. You contributed to the women's football in the UK and it's recognised at the exhibition of the British Library in London called Unsuitable Game for Ladies, a century of women's football. The story behind that, a few years ago I complained to the FA that their website did not recognise the women's FA. Greg Dyke was willing to listen because I used to work with him. He was very helpful and we got a very large piece put on the Football Association website about what the women's FA had done. Not very many years ago I realised that this was no longer there. So I wrote my own website because I thought I can't die without the record being made of what the Women's FA did. What I've been doing for the last few years is trying to rescue papers that um, might otherwise have been dumped. And believe me, an awful lot has been thrown away. But about five, six years ago, I drove to Newport in South Wales in my little Ford Fiesta to bring back the files of a gentleman called David Marlowe. David was one of those who was there at the beginning and he was absolutely meticulous about rules. He used to drive us all crazy at our council meetings with rules, but he kept records and I, his uh, widow wanted to get rid of all of these files. So I drove down to Newport. I could not get all of the files in my Ford Fiesta. So I had to make a second journey down there. So I come back to London with these files in crates in my dining room and they just sat there for about a year. I didn't know what to do with them. I was having lunch with uh, somebody and I said about this and he said, well, why not give them to the British Library? I had already asked the Football Association, but they didn't want them. I got in touch with the British Library and... 
took a few months because it had to go to committee meetings, but they decided that they wanted to take the files. Now, these files were 25 years of minutes, which may not be important now, but will be important one day, I suspect, plus our newsletters, plus programmes and things like that. So I have continued my website. I've also extended... I am going to write a book, but goodness knows when. But I've also, even just today, I've um, managed to track down a few more England players because you can appreciate um, it's a long time ago. And uh, just last week I was in Norwich seeing two England players who I hadn't seen for 40 years. That's a good point, actually. I wanted to mention that. So some of the players, tell us about some of the players at the time that you set up your first team. Tell us a bit about the players. Where Were they, like you, totally interested in football or was it new to them? <laughs> we played our first England match against Scotland in uh, on the 18th of November 1972. But we played that up in Greenock. But on the way, we went by coach, on the way, I'd got permission from the Football Association for us to have a photo call at Wembley. And they, the girls were thrilled because they were allowed in the changing room, they walked up the tunnel, onto the pitch. And obviously oh, wow. this is the old Wembley. Mm-hmm. And obviously we, we still have photographs from that time. Now these girls were just enthusiastic about playing football. I'm, I'm frightened to ask this. Mm. Who won? <laughs> well, again, um, I was then working at the BBC and in those days we had Match of the Day and on the BBC and we had the big match on ITV. And that Sunday, ITV gave as the final score the half-time score when Scotland were winning. And as I think I must have been honorary... Yes, I was honorary secretary by then. I had to write to the ITV because there was no... Um, no social media or anything like that then. You wrote a letter. And I had to write to them, and the following Sunday, the big match apologised on air that they had given the wrong result. They'd given the half-time result when England won 3-2 at full time. And my bosses at the BBC were so thrilled that I had managed to get ITV to apologise. <laughs> I love it. That's oh, great. Brilliant. brilliant story. Thinking about now, football, women's football now, the link between then and now, do you think women's football is great at the moment? Do you think it should... We can't sit and be content about it, do you think? Oh, no, you can't be content no. about it. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, um, we did very well by finishing fourth in the World Cup, but that's one place lower than we did in 2015. That's right. So that can't be great. But the investment that the FA has managed to put into women's football in the last few years is is tremendous. However, there's still, I think, quite a big gap between the mass of teams and the the top teams, the, the Super League. But it will... It will come. I just hope that we don't lose, shall we say, the simplicity of football that we have acquired because from the comments of people who knew nothing about women's football from this World Cup was that they enjoyed it because it was, shall we say, pure football. There were none of the theatrics. <laughs> um, and, and let's hope we don't lose that. Yeah. Let's hope that we do keep, I call it the simplicity. I think the big win from this past Women's World Cup was the exposure and the fact that people were talking about it all over the place. You couldn't switch on yeah. the radio or the television without mm-hmm. hearing people talking about it. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And really engaging with it and really enjoying it. And people were attending matches and loving it. Yeah. That was the big winner, I think, last year. It was. This but, year. but we've got to extend that, haven't we, into them attending matches that they can see locally, either yes. either the Super League or further down the yeah. structure. Because without the grassroots, yeah. you don't get the people no, going forward. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. 
But the exposure on TV and in newspapers, even now when I open up the newspapers mm-hmm. and I look at the sports page on the yeah. back, yeah. it's all about men still. Mm-hmm. And it's a slight thing. I don't understand in this day and age why mm-hmm. we are not talking more about women's sport. We've just had the 2019, mm-hmm. as Linda said, you've said. Yeah. But we are still not seeing it in mainstream mm-hmm. as much as the men. And yet a lot of people said, oh, what are you worried about? At least it's happening. It's there. Well, why do we need to worry well, we, about we've, it? We've you know, we have got onto the sports pages a few years ago. Um, Lucy Bronze last week was voted UEFA Female Player of the Year. Yeah. But really, the exposure that she was given was minute compared with Van Dyke, who won the Men's Award. Today, she has been nominated for the FIFA Award. It will be interesting to see what, what press coverage that gets. I suppose it is slowly, slowly. We will, we will get there. Possibly not in my lifetime, but you never know. Mm. I, I guess some of the people say that the women's football, and this isn't a quote from me, I'm just reading lots of stuff, that women's football isn't as competitive, isn't as professional, isn't as energetic. But I get the impression that sometimes we're comparing women's football yeah. to men's football. Yeah. And I think that's where we go wrong. Yes, it, it's right. That's right. We, we shouldn't be. And it's very difficult not to. It, it should be regarded as something in its own right. You know, women's tennis has only in the last few years got the exposure uh, on a par with the men's men's tournaments. Mm. Personally, I think today, just by talking to you, you've done so much for women's football. I'd love to see you one day being recognised for it. I really do. I think you are an incredible lady and it's just fantastic mm. to sit here. You're... Your whole knowledge of women's football, I should think, far outtakes any man on sometimes on men's football. I just want to make sure that what the Women's FA did is not lost. It was important to me that the British Library, because I wanted the, the documents, the files, to be safe. I could have given them to, say, a university or somewhere else, but that didn't guarantee that they wouldn't be in a in a warehouse somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm. and lost yeah. and found. So a five-minute wonder. Found, yes. Yeah. So mm. it was important to me that the British Library agreed to take them as part of the contemporary archives. Just going back to when you f- uh, first developed your first team, you took a referee course? Oh, I did. I thought I should know a bit more about the game. And in the early 70s, um, women were not allowed to register as referees. So the, one of the first things that the Women's FA did was to get the Football Association to accept that women could do a course through a county association and anybody who was successful could register with the Women's FA to do women's matches only. And I did that oh, probably in about 74. This, was, this is important, this date, because the Sex Discrimination Act came in in, I think, 75. And... Only when the Sex Discrimination Act came in, a female referee from the Liverpool area, she wasn't happy with only being allowed to do women's matches. So she stirred up her MP, who I believe asked questions in Parliament, and as a result of that, the Football Association changed its rules and allowed women to register directly with their county association. So on the night I qualified with Middlesex County there were three women and we of course were only allowed to register with the women's FA for women's matches only. (laughs) Would you have wanted 
to have refereed men's uh, games. I didn't did want they? to referee women. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I my I was not doing it to be a referee. I thought I ought to understand a bit more. The first chairman was Pat Dunn. She had been a referee and a thorn in the side of the football authorities for a few years. Why had she been a thorn in the side? Because, because I presume, I don't know, I've never discussed it with them, but I presume because she was one of the first women referees. Because the the most recent referee at the moment is uh, Stephanie Frappard. The game between Liverpool and Chelsea. Mm. And we talk about women in in the spotlight... You have to be quite tough, don't you? Did you feel you were quite tough when you were doing your refereeing? Oh, I, 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 did, I did referee some matches, some girls' matches, because that's all I could. And I could not, not could not cope, but I could not understand the animosity the players felt towards the referee before you'd even set foot on the pit. It really was, um, really was quite difficult. And I, I have a brother who was a referee. He was a class one. And he gave up uh, refereeing men's matches and went into kids' football. I'm not sure that is now seen as, as a, an easy ride mm. because you've got the parents yes. to contend oh, with. Yes. Yes. So I don't think being a referee is easy. So, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be tough, whatever. What have been the highlights for you from the moment you decided that this was the game you were going to set up? And, and you know, what has really stuck out for you? What challenged you, I suppose, or what was the highlight? In 2011, Japan won the World Cup. In 1981, we were invited by the Japanese to take England to Japan. Now, bear in mind, at that time, we had no money. Well, we had no money at all during the WFA. And so any teams we played were usually from Europe. So the Japanese offered a fully funded competition in Japan. And so we would meet Japan. And then they invited us to bring another two European sides because Europe then was preeminent and still is really in women's football, setting as USA aside at the present time. And so we took Italy and Denmark with us and we had a, a four-nation competition. The importance of this and why it struck home uh, in 2011 with me was because in 2011 Japan won and in 1981 they were planning their their future success. They knew that for the Japanese national women's team to succeed they needed to meet competition, top competition. And that's, that's why I say we, we don't quite know how long it's going to take us. We've done pretty well so far but we've somehow got to beat America. But are you saying that the likes of Japan are quite forward-thinking and they are yeah. far more forward-thinking than the, than the UK? I they were prepared I, to put money in yeah. it. I, I, I wouldn't say they are now, but mm. back in 1981 they were. What a knowledgeable person, Patricia, is about football. There was just nothing she didn't know about women's football. Absolutely. She was able to recall quite a few important dates, wasn't she, going yeah. back to when she wrote that letter to the newspaper. She seemed to have everything slotted in place and she made sure that it was recorded properly. But she she has an amazing amount of uh, dates in her head and when it all happens. Yeah, I know. And to be with the England team as well, you know, that early women's England team. Yeah. You know, that must have been really, really exciting. You're listening to Women Making Waves.